What's going on, everybody? Caleb Carter here, and you are listening to the Royal Pursuit Podcast. Today is the second episode of our Look at Luke. We're going to jump in, and we're going to look at this next miracle that Jesus performs after his Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6 and 7. We're going to take a look at the comparisons between this widow and the centurion before her, and how that also points us back to the Old Testament. In fact, it brings us right back to the book of 2 Kings, not chapter 5 this time though. So hopefully you're ready to uh, buckle up and dive into the text with me as we pursue royalty together. Let's jump in. Okay, a look at Luke, episode 2. I hope you guys are ready. This is a lot of fun for me. I, I've really enjoyed studying and reading through the book of Luke and asking these critical questions because that that is so important for us to remember. We have got to get good at asking questions. And I think for a lot of us, we were raised just to believe something and, and that's it. But to be honest, most of my growth as a Christian has come when I have asked tough, critical questions of the scriptures, because just like uh, a book I was reading from Spurgeon a couple weeks ago, the scriptures are like a lion. They don't need us to defend them. The scriptures will stand on their own. They have been time-tested. The only book that has been scrutinized for thousands of years and has stood the test of time. So I'm not going to break it with my questions. I think those questions are encouraged, and God wants us to ask them. I think we have to be okay with some questions we might not ever get answered on this side of eternity. But when I go looking, I can open up the opportunity to strike gold and just grow immensely. And so that's what we're going to do today. If you recall from the last episode, uh, we looked at the story of Jesus healing this centurion in Luke chapter 7, and it came off the heels of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and how radically different this person, this centurion, looks from who we would imagine as the blesseds. But now the story is continuing. It's not a completely separate story. The text continues. And that's why I encourage you to read in chunks. Don't read in chapters. Allow yourself to get through an entire story. Don't just stop because it might be three or four days before you pick up and, and you've lost some of that magic. And so we're going to jump right back in. We're going to start at Luke chapter 7, verse 11, and we're going to do some comparing and some contrasting from these two different miracles. And so I'm going to jump right in. Luke 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the bear. The buyer? Bear? Uh, They were carrying him out, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. I said that weird. Judea or Judea. 
I'm not great at pronouncing these names, so you'll have to bear with me. And I won't always edit them out, so that way you can giggle at me from time to time. But this is the story. This is the story that we read right after Jesus is working for this centurion and is amazed by his great faith. Now remember, the centurion just does not strike me particularly as the blesses, but what we could see is that it was his heart, I think. That was the difference. But now our job is to look at this next story and ask some questions. What is going on here? What are the differences between Jesus healing this widow's son and Jesus healing the centurion's servant right before that? So so just take a second and to reflect, what, what differences can you see? As I was studying this text and just reflecting on how wildly different the two texts are, the first thing that I spotted was that the widow is in a completely different place in life than, this, than the centurion. For all intents and purposes, she is essentially catching all the brunt of the curse. She's lost her husband, and now she's lost her son. And that's kind of a death sentence if you don't have a robust family to pick you up or to take care of you. If you don't have a lot of wealth from your husband or from your family, that puts you in a really tough place. And so this woman is definitely in a much different position than the centurion is. The centurion was losing his favorite servant, the servant that he highly valued and loved dearly. And that's, a, that's painful for, sh- for sure. But this is a very different situation and the widow is catching the brunt of it. And that's that's kind of the first thing that we see here. Now, the second observation that I came across as I was reading was Jesus's posture. You see, when he was with the centurion, he was invited. But when he saw this woman and her pain and her grief, he intervened. You see, that's the difference between these two elements or these two stories that I'm picking up on. In one regard, he's invited. In the other, he is intervening. What does that mean? Why would Jesus intervene without being asked? And so as you're reading these texts, as you're reading these scriptures, these are the questions that you need to ask and wrestle with. What is going on here? Why is Jesus jumping in in this place, but he was only waiting to be invited in other places? What's the catch? And so that's going to be your work to do as the person studying the text and growing. And so as we're having this conversation, I'm just sharing with you my insights when I studied the text. And so as I started looking into it, I started asking more and more questions about this little story because it's pretty short and it ends pretty positively with the whole town, all the people that saw, you know, they're in awe. But I went back to verse 11 and it read, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And I started asking questions, what is the deal with Nain? It's naming the place for a reason. Now, that might be a big reason. It might be a little reason, but there's something going on here. And so what is the deal? So I started doing some research on the city of Nain, and I'm going to read from you a little excerpt that I found, which is really fascinating, that Nain is actually pretty much the same location, or at least a town, three or four miles away from a town called Shunem. Shunem was, had basically this main body of population, and at some point, 
the city was no more, and those people migrated to what then became the city of Nain, just a few miles away. So if you look at a map, you'll see these two different points where I think Shunem is just a couple miles to the south of Nain. And so these people centuries later, would be the descendants of that village, more or less, is kind of the theory behind it. And as I was studying, I I couldn't believe that I did not remember this story. Um, But there is a story about Shunem in our Old Testament. And so now that's our job to go back and take a look at that story and see if there's any connections. And it's going to blow your mind as you read it, because the story is placed almost exactly next to the story we read last week from Naaman. So if you remember, the centurion in Luke 7 and the military commander Naaman from 2 Kings chapter 5, well, now we've got this widow from Luke 7, and now we're about to see this woman who loses her son in 2 Kings chapter 4, just one chapter before And I've gone back and forth about this podcast, about how much scripture to read in one setting, because you as the listener, it can be a little bit of a a drag almost if you're just following along with the Bible in front of you. So I want to just recap this story a little bit. Elisha is traveling to and from these different locations, and this woman from Shunem, she senses that he is a good, godly man, and she invites him in to have dinner whenever he's passing through with her and her husband. And eventually she tells her husband, this is a man of God. Let's have him in our home. Let's build a room for him, make him comfortable. So that way, whenever he's traveling, he can stay here. And so that's what they do. And when Elisha sees this, he's like, man, what can I do for this woman? And the woman basically tells him that I've got everything I need. And so Gehazi, Elisha's servant, says, well, she doesn't have a child. And so Elisha tells the woman, you will have a child around this time next year. And it comes true. The woman does give birth to a son. But it's not too long after that that the father's working in the field, the son's with him, and he complains about his head. And all of a sudden... The child dies on his mother's lap. And so the mom, frantic, the only thing she does is she takes the son and rushes him up to that room where Elisha stays, puts him in his bed, then goes to her husband and gets a mule and begins to search out for Elisha. And as she's in the distance, right, she's riding this mule and Gehazi approaches her and it's like, hey, is everything okay? And she's not wanting to be slowed down. And she's like, oh yeah, everything's fine. The scriptures say that she says, shalom. But she rushes right by him. And as soon as she gets to Elisha, she falls at his feet and begins weeping. And Elisha asks, what's going on? And she explains that her child is dead. And so he throws his staff to Gehazi and he runs back uh, to Shunem puts the staff on the boy, and Elisha and the Shunammite woman begin heading back as well. Obviously, they're walking, whereas the servant was just hightailing it. He's booking it. But by the time they get there, the servant tells him nothing worked. And so Elisha goes up into the room, lays on the boy, and nothing happens. So then he gets up, and he's pacing, and then he goes back down and does it again. And the boy, it's so bizarre, but he sneezes like seven times and then comes back to life and gives the boy back to his mother. And I love this story. Again, 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 8 through... 
37. It's an epic story about this Shunammite woman that at every single turn, she is pursuing God's presence. That's the reason why she makes this room for Elisha. She's like, this is a man of God. God's presence is in him, around him, and I just want to be close to it. And then when he blesses her with the son and that son dies, the only thing she can think to do is to take that kid to where the presence of God has been. And so she takes him to Elisha's room, and then she just hops on a mule and just books it to go find Elisha. And then when Elisha sends Gehazi with the staff to get a child, she doesn't follow Gehazi. She stays right by Elisha, and she even says, I'm not going anywhere until we get to see my son. And so at every turn, this woman is just pursuing the presence of God at every turn. And, and for me, it's like, man, this would make such a good Mother's Day sermon. And I'm hoping one day I can preach it from a Mother's Day perspective. But for the case of this story in the context, what do we see differently between this Shunammite woman and between this widow from Nain, because remember, these are pretty much the exact same places. And for those people in that time, this would have been a very familiar story, contextually, geographically. It would have been, it would have been like <laughs> crazy, I guess. And so for us, we've got to stop and ask, what are the differences? And and as you're listening to the story, think about some of the key words that I've been saying. The Shunammite woman did nothing but pursue God. But in the story of the widow from Nain, she didn't do anything. No, God pursued her. And I think that's the key takeaway here. Last week when we looked at Naaman and we looked at the centurion, we learned a little bit about ourselves and our heart posture and what's needed. But this next miracle, to me, is indicating something definitely different. Again, it's still pointing us back to Jesus is this perfect version of Elisha, but it's also, it's telling us something. I think it's telling us about this compassion, this deep sense of love, because Jesus is moved by this hurt and this pain of this widow. She is catching the brunt of the fall. The full force of the curse is on her. She's, she's feeling all of it, because some of us, guys, some of us kind of get to opt out of the curse in some respects. We're born into wealthy and healthy families, and we experience much less of the curse than other people, and Jesus is seeing this, and he is moved to compassion, to act. And I think that is our key takeaway here. When we read the text, Jesus sees, and he's like, man, I've got to do something. And so as I'm reflecting on this, there's a couple of books that I've just found to be amazing resources for trying to understand the heart of God. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And so this story is giving us a glimpse of who the Father is. And there's two books that do a great job of that. The first book I want to share is called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It is an amazing book about the heart of Christ and ultimately the heart of God. And I want to read just an excerpt from this book where he talks about how God is so much different than mankind, whereas we are so prone to wrath and you have to provoke us to grace but God is completely opposite. He says, God's anger requires provocation. He needs to be provoked to anger, but his mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. 
We tend to think divine anger is pent up and spring-loaded, and divine mercy is slow to build, but it is just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick. And I, I just don't think that we can, we can rush through this. To think about how easy all of us are provoked to wrath. It doesn't take a lot to, to get wrath out of me. But on the flip side, I almost need to see something in someone to give them grace. And Jesus is absolutely opposite. And even even the Old Testament God is the exact opposite of us. God, if anything, I think God's grace and compassion show up even more in the Old Testament because time and time again, he's just asking and pleading with Israel to turn around. And as soon as they do, as soon as they turn their faces to him, he is so willing and ready to take away wrath and pour out grace and mercy. And I think that is what we're seeing here when Jesus sees this widow from Nain, this deep connection to Elisha in the Old Testament. And Jesus is not only saying something, I am the better Elisha, but he's saying, take a look at the heart of God. And so that's the first book. The second book comes from a guy named Brennan Manning. I hadn't heard of Brennan before. I think I might have read some quotes every now and then, but Brennan writes this book called Abba's Child. And it's subtitled, The Cry of the Heart for Intimate Belonging. And, and Brennan spends this entire book trying to help you understand that, that we need to develop this, this heart to embrace God's love. And that's one of the biggest problems for Christians is that we don't truly bask and rest in his love. And so as he is trying to paint this picture for us, he talks about this really cool concept called indiscriminate compassion. And I think it ties in so well to this story. He says, take a look at a rose. Is it possible for the rose to say, I shall offer my fragrance to good people and withhold it from bad people? Or can you imagine a lamp withholds its rays from a wicked person who seeks to walk in its light? It could only do that by ceasing to be a lamp. And observe how helplessly and indiscriminately a tree gives shade to everyone. Good and bad, young and old, high and low, to animals and humans and every living creature, even to the one who seeks to cut it down. This is the first quality of love. It's indiscriminate character. And I think that that excerpt ties in so well with these first two miracles after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is indiscriminately compassionate. And so if you can follow Brennan's logic here, he's saying is that like a tree doesn't care if you're evil or if you're good. His shade will fall on you either way. And Christ's compassion is the exact same way. He doesn't withhold it to those he doesn't feel worthy. He pours it out to everyone at all times. And I love this idea. And, I, I, and I'm so convicted by it because it's so easy for me to be selectively compassionate. So for us, we're the opposite. We are discriminately compassionate. We only give compassion to those we feel like deserve it or, or in, our, in our group or our circle. But that is not the heart of Christ. You can see it here. Jesus is healing a Roman centurion, or he's doing a miracle for him. Jesus is healing this widow from Nain, not from Jerusalem, not from Nazareth, not from Bethlehem, from someone outside of that circle. And I think that's saying something without saying it, that Jesus' heart 
is longing to be with the hurting and those who are in need, those that are hungry for righteousness, those that mourn, those who are persecuted for righteousness. And so you and me, we have to wrestle with how do we develop that? How do we grow into this place of having this indiscriminate compassion? Going back to last week when we looked at Naaman's obedience, even though it was kind of begrudgingly, how do we get there? Because I think for so many of us, we look at Jesus and we say, I could never do that. And I think without him, we're absolutely right. We couldn't. But how do we start? And later in the book, Brennan shares from a famous short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne called The Great Stone Face. And it goes like this. A young boy stares at the face carved in granite and regularly asks tourists in town if they know the identity of the face on the mountain. No one does. On into manhood, and then into midlife, and then into old age, he continues to gaze upon the face at every opportunity. Until one day, a tourist is passing through, exclaims to the once young boy, who is now a weather-beaten old man, You are the face on the mountain! And he goes on to say, Contemplative awareness of that risen Jesus shapes our resemblance to him. All we have to do is fix our eyes on Jesus and the things of this world will grow strangely dim. This idea that I don't have to be like Jesus. I have to admire and keep my eyes fixed on him. And when I do that, I will slowly but surely become like him. I will bear his image as long as I keep my eyes fixed on him. And so for me, as I'm reading these stories and I'm reading through the book of Luke, it it just blows me away that it's not just a miracle. And it's not just the pointing back to I'm the better version of Elisha. Because if we look again at the end of the story, what do the town people say? A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. And so I think about that. I think about that amazing act right there. But then as we dig deeper into it, we can see this extra layer, this extra level of meaning that we have a God who is pursuing us, who wants to be amongst the poor, who wants to be amongst the hungry and the needy and those that are mourning. That's where Jesus' heart is. And if we look back to Naaman, he wasn't necessarily those people physically, but he was spiritually. He had this servant, this servant where he can go and get many others, surely, but his heart was for this poor servant. His heart was for the people of Israel. And so he had that same heart, though it might not have looked like it. And it blows me away as I sit here and just talk about it out loud. And so I hope for you, this has been valuable to see how when we ask deep questions, when we read scripture in chunks and not chapters, we can get invited into a deeper story that's connecting us throughout all these different elements of scripture. Like the Old Testament and the New Testament combined is this library, this hub, this database of knowledge. And a story here is connecting to other things in different parts of the scriptures. And so for me, this is a blast. And I hope it is for you too. And next week, next week, we're going to wrap this little three-part series on a look at Luke with John the Baptist's response to Jesus's miracles. You see, because John is watching all of this, he's getting his reports from his, his followers, and things aren't adding up. And so we're going to wind up this little three-part series with the reflection on what's going on through John's head and heart. How does our study and knowledge of these two stories help paint a better context for what's going on with John, and what can we learn from it? 
I hope that this has been inspiring. I hope this has been encouraging. I hope this has given you new eyes to see. And I hope you'll join me next week as we pursue royalty again, digging in the word, asking good questions, and learning to follow Jesus. We'll talk soon.